0: Reporting from the leading edge of humanity's consciousness evolution since 1997, this is News for the Soul, the number one life-changing talk radio show in the world, according to Google, AOL, MSN, Alexa, and YouTube and home to the largest, totally free, life-changing media library in the world. In its 13th year of broadcasting, News for the Soul is syndicated on the air, on the web, and beyond, and found online at newsfortheSoul.com. Now, here's your host, the one News for the Soul listeners are calling the Oprah of the Internet, Nicole Whitney.
1: Welcome to News for the Soul, Dr. David Hawkins. This is
2: Dr. Hawkins.
1: Hi, Dr. Hawkins. How are you? I am fine. I am so glad we connected. I first heard about your first book when I was actually at a talk with Wayne Dyer. And he had been explaining to the audience that he had changed his, I mean, this book had just changed his entire path. Yes. And then I heard several other speakers say the same thing at other events. And I thought,
2: i got to check out this book.
1: My understanding is you have been able to map out energy levels of consciousness. Is
2: yeah, that right? It was, it was based on the discovery of how to tell truth from falsehood uh, as part of consciousness research. We discovered that we could tell truth from falsehood and, uh, because, and that this, um, the basis of it is really the basis of consciousness itself. The field of consciousness uh, recognizes truth. Uh, It doesn't recognize falsehood. So it's not true versus false test. It's true versus not true.
3: And because
2: consciousness itself is totally encompassing of all of mankind and it's outside of time, temporal time, we discovered we could find the truth or falsehood of anything, anywhere in time or place any person that ever lived, anything they ever thought, uh, anything ever written, every piece of music. In fact, we're currently doing a book with a thousand calibrations of everything from the ancient pyramids to all the great philosophers, the great artists, and all the aspects of current society. So it's a really incredible research tool.
1: So starting from the beginning, how did you first come across this
2: concept? Well, I myself had had some... uh, what the world calls enlightening experiences very early and uh, they tended to recur and then became extremely overwhelming in my late thirties
1: what was happening?
2: Um, well the first one began really at age three when uh, out of total oblivion I suddenly became aware of consciousness I became aware of existence I had no verbalization for it but there was the non-verbal awareness of existence and instantly up came the fear of non-existence if I exist then it could have come about that I would would, might not have come into existence so that's a in spiritual work that's called the polarity of the opposites it's a duality and really it doesn't get resolved until very advanced virtual evolution calibration level about 850 that took me 50 years and then uh, in teenage uh, i had a near-death experience in a snowbank and uh, in those days nobody ever heard of such things and but uh, in the middle of a blizzard i climbed into a snowbank to keep from freezing to death and um, suddenly a warm uh... i you know it was obviously divinity a warm low ever presence prevailed and there was no personal self left the only reality present was this infinite love in which any personal self totally dissolved and uh... with it with in following that experience i never mentioned it to anybody what would you say about it and uh... But there was a transformation. and uh, I completely lost all fear of death. I've never had a fear of death. World War II, uh, you know, I got killed a number of times and I had no anxiety about it. If you go, you go. I mean, it didn't make any difference to me. Wow. Then in uh, my late 30s, after some in- intensive inner spiritual work, um, the personal self disappeared permanently. Yeah, which called the mind stopped thinking and there was only like a profound awareness of an infinite presence which is what is speaking to you today seeing as there's no personality involved personality is like utilized by the self with a capital s and uh, life after that point is spontaneous (laughs) <laughs> that was sort of an unusual story <laughs>
4: yes it is
1: so, so you're saying you've um, you know, uh, been able to overcome the ego mind or the lower self mind or whatever you know I mean, everybody calls it something different but yeah
2: it, it just disappeared into nothingness and uh i saw it was an illusion uh after that it was practically impossible to function and um i did leave the world for close to 10 years and uh and then began to function again, and out of that came this research. Um, I, went, I attended a lecture on kinesiology, and when I saw the kinesiology, which chiropractors and holistic health practitioners use rather widely, uh, I saw that the test was based on a response of consciousness. It was impersonal, and that led to the research, which allowed me to calibrate the levels of consciousness, possible to mankind from one to a thousand, and we found that anything on that scale that calibrates 200 or over was true, and anything under 200 was false, and that that which is over 200 uh, represented power, and that which is under 200, which is detrimental to life, represents force. So that was a staggering uh, discovery. Uh, That was the fact that you could go anywhere in time and calibrate anything. Um,
1: So I guess defining um, what you mean by power as opposed to powering over, you mean sort of self-empowerment or true power.
2: No, um, uh, their qualities are different. Um, You you might say that power really relates To an energy which is requires energy, power. In other words, force goes from here to there, like a gun bullet, a bullet shooting. Mm -hmm. Goes from here to there. Of course, force then creates counter force, so that one cannot really accomplish great things in the world by force. Um, Power is more like gravity. Gravity doesn't go from here to there. Gravity gives out energy, sustains everything within its field. So power is more like a field, and force is more like uh, physicality within the field. But the real power is coming from the field.
1: Hmm. So when is is resistance that force?
2: Hmm. Well, spirituality has to do with context, which is the field, and... uh, the ego has to do with more force, emotional force, uh, which is the content. So it led to the realization that um, the reason man can never arrive at what is truth, or how do you know truth, is because he didn't realize the difference between context and content. And spiritually speaking, the ultimate context is God and in the average experience content is the human ego so that was you know like redefining what is the problem <laughs> yeah
1: how did you come to set a value for things how, how did you get to that level setting a value for certain levels of of power or force or you
2: know, well, different energy oh, yes how to get a calibration well we uh by trial and error ended up with an arbitrary Scale of one to a thousand. It's actually a logarithmic scale, but um, you can say, in fact, anybody can set up their own scale. You can set up your own scale from one to a hundred, or one to a million, or whatever you want. And then you say, well, <clears throat> if everything in the universe that ever existed is, you know, goes from one to a thousand, then um, where is the Statue of Liberty? Over one hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, and then suddenly you go. You, you get a definition. Uh, we and
1: this you know, is through the muscle testing, the kinesiology muscle testing, where yeah. you know, stay strong or goes down, right?
2: Yeah. So what we mainly said was, if everything goes from one to a thousand, what is what number is truth? We got two hundred. So on the published map of consciousness, two hundred is the level of honesty and integrity. Huh? Honesty and integrity, critical critical uh, balance point. Above it, everything makes you go strong. Below that, everything makes you go weak.
1: Now, so from that point, once you've defined a number, you're then testing everything to see what factors in on on the relative points of the scale and using kinesiology. So how does it factor in, like, if you know what you're testing? I guess we should actually describe how kinesiology works first before I ask that question. How does that work?
2: Well, the way it's generally used throughout the world is... uh, um, with with two people, some people can do it by themselves by making a circle of their middle finger and their and their thumb and holding that circle, and then using their left hand making a hook of their forefinger trying to try and break that circle. Uh, when you hold something in mind as positive, the whole musculature of the body goes strong. The acupuncture system instantly recognizes truth and you go strong Um, when confronted with falsity much like an amoeba backs away from poison uh, the body instantly goes weak now this weakness is transitory very quick response and the acupuncture system quickly rebalances itself so to do the test then or what we do is two people i use uh I ask the questions, and, and my wife will hold her right arm out, parallel to the ground, and um, I press down with two fingers on, her, on the wrist of her extended arm, and I tell her, resist. Okay, so the way I'll do it is I'll say, um, this radio program is integrous, resist. And if it's integrous, the person stays strong. If they're not integrate she goes weak, and we cancel it and tell them we can't talk to them.
1: <laughs> hmm. So you, did you test us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, <Okay.
2: laughs> um Actually, the calibration comes considerably from intention. So we found uh, to get accurate results, the two people doing the test themselves have to be integrates. they personal level of consciousness has to calibrate 200 or over.
1: Well, see, that was going to be my next question, is, yeah. is how does that factor in what they want the answer to be?
2: Yeah, okay. So they both have to be over 200, and the uh, intention of the question, the question itself has to be integrous. So you can't use it to, like, make money on the stock market because that's Intention would be coming from the solar plexus, gain, uh, profit, money, etc. Mm. Uh, so one has to have a certain purity of intention. In other words, you're asking the question for the purpose of knowing the truth. So um, we discovered that um, the personal beliefs of the people doing the tests have nothing to do with the response. Uh, That the response is impersonal. Um, With this, can be proven in a couple of ways. One is you don't have to tell the um, the second person what you're holding in mind. And I often do it that way. I'll say, "What I'm holding in mind is over 200," and her arm goes strong. It's over 300. Arm goes strong. 400. Arm goes strong. 440. Arm goes strong. 450. She goes down. So. Yeah, what I'm calibrating is probably around 4.45, you know, maybe a book title. So they don't have to know what it is. No, so, you know, the the other person doesn't even have to know what it is. Um, Also, the answer you get may be quite contrary to what you believe. And uh, so I always say don't do the test unless you're willing to accept whatever that answer might be, which means you you have to be dedicated to knowing the truth rather than affirming some positionality.
1: So definitely not being attached to the outcome.
2: Yeah. In other words, you have to be more devoted to truth. In other words, you have to be devoted more to God than you do to the ego because the ego has positionality. Right. You know, a lot of people write me letters and they say, please uh, calibrate this, that, or the other thing. They don't really want to know that. All they want me to do is confirm some prejudice they have in their own mind that some spiritual teacher off in some remote area is is uh, the, you know, the savior of mankind or something. And I don't want to tell them that he only calibrates 180. <laughs> 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 you do you, know you get a lot of calls like please. that? Huh? Do you huh? get
1: a lot of mail like that?
2: Yeah, we try to discourage it, but we get quite a bit. Wow. Piles of books. Propositions and papers and sad stories. Uh, what we do is we, we teach the people how to get arrive at the answer themselves. And if they're unable to do it themselves, we give them a lot of references to people who do do it and know how to do it. Uh, on the Internet, for instance, under kinesiology, there's uh, many references. You know, the original work was done, done by Dr. John Diamond who wrote a book called Your Body Doesn't Lie, uh, later put out also as Behavioral Kinesiology. And there's the American College of Kinesiology. So I tell a few people, if you really want to know, go to kinesiology on the Internet and study it, and you know that way you can discern the truth yourself.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I am putting out a book, uh, which I'm working on now, The Thousand Calibrations of It'll include most of the questions that people ask, so I tell them, well, in a year, that'll be covered in a book, you know, or
1: something. Oh, okay. good. Okay. When's that coming up?
2: Oh, that'll take me a good year, yet. <laughs> <laughs> 1,000 calibrations. I mean, we've probably done six, 700 already. And by the time the, we wrote the book, I, uh, we've done 310,000 calibrations.
1: Holy smokes and what was the focus I haven't read that one yet what was the focus of the book I that's the recent release right
2: of the trilogy power versus force introduces the subject and um, that book calibrates I think about 850 then we took the subject further in the book the second book of the trilogy called the eye of the eye um, meaning really spiritual discernment Uh, and going to a higher level of consciousness and the completion of the trip from the evolution of mankind you might say the evolution of consciousness since its occurrence on this planet up to the present time and up to its highest evolution is the great avatars christ jesus buddha um so this the third book completes the evolution all the way to the maximum possibility of enlightenment in its highest expression. So it's really for the serious spiritual seeker. Book one kills the wide number of people. Book two is more for the spiritual seeker. And book three is for a person really who's dedicated to reaching enlightenment. <laughs>
1: mm, wow. So what number do you calibrate at?
2: Uh, I don't calibrate
1: myself. <laughs> <laughs> Has yeah. anyone done that for you?
2: Oh, God, they always do that.
1: Any idea where you're at, roughly?
2: Do the, the book always reflects the uh, writer's level of consciousness. So the calibration of the book tells you what the level of that consciousness is.
1: And the book was?
2: I think Eye of the Eye was, uh, no, let's see, R versus Forest is 850. Eye of the Eye was 970, and I is 999.7. <laughs> oh, my. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that is high. <laughs> um, when you tested our show, I'm curious. Hmm? I'm te- I'm curious when you tested our show what what number you got there.
2: When I did what? When you tested our radio show. Oh, I we just ask if they're integrous or not. Just oh, okay. We the level. Ah,
1: okay. <laughs> usually
2: in the 400s because uh, an interview show has to be done by somebody intellectually aware or capable. So it's usually it's almost always in the 400s, you know.
1: Yes, one would hope anyway.
2: Well, uh, that, that's the level of America, so to have a radio show you have to be pretty much on the level of the listener. The America calibrates at 431 right now. I think Canada calibrates about the same.
1: What does George Bush calibrate at?
2: Uh, well, the Office of the Presidency of the United States calibrates consistently 450 to 460. It has for you know, 100 years. Um, the great spiritual leaders of the world uh, usually calibrate uh, in the five, high, five, high 500s. Uh, the Pope and um, what's the head of the Tibetan uh, Buddhism, so world famous, uh, Dalai Lama. They, they calibrate in high 500s. They don't go over into 600 because at 600 what happens is you become pretty immobilized. There's only an infinite presence of love. And like I was in the snowbank here, uh, there's no personal self to function. The world is not real. Only the presence of God is, is the sole reality about which nothing can be said. You can, there's nothing to say about it. It took me 30 years. For 30 years, I never said anything about it. What
4: can
2: you say? Tap <laughs> somebody on the shoulder as you walk down the street and say, "Hey, guess what?"
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: well, I mean times have changed now, of course, but it wasn't like
1: this then, you know. Where it was, people were quite open about things now, but seemingly, anyway, at, at least in certain circles. I still kind of hooked on your last comment there about. So the the country, the overall country in which you're living, is calibrating at about 400.
2: Um, North America calibrates around 431 which is extremely, uh, I mean, it's a, that's a very integrous level. and
1: uh, It's a lot higher than I thought it was going
4: to be.
2: Well, only 8% of the world ever reaches the 400, so it is extremely high. You know, whole continents calibrate like 90. <laughs>
1: the with the 90 amount of violence of going on and stuff, you know, yeah. that's what's surprising me.
2: But what's
1: the, the amount of violence and, you know, guns and killing and, you know, violent programming and... I
2: would
1: have thought that would
2: have taken us down a few notches overall. 500s, you know. <laughs> uh, so the 400s is the world of reason, the intellect, law, ethics, uh, university, college, education. Um, and then about 4% of the population reaches a calibrated level of 500, which is love. So, the five five hundred really indicates the emergence of love as the dominating factor. Um, and And on that level, love means a way of being in the world. Uh, it's not an emotion like in love. Um, mm-hmm. It's not between two people. it's what you have become. and by. Consciousness level 540 is reached only by 0.4% of the world's population, and that's a level of uh, unconditional love. Unconditional love means as a person assassinates you, you bless them and say, thank you, brother. (laughs)
1: yeah yeah total law of allowing there that's a big one to get to yeah
2: yeah. and then at 600 as I say that's the traditional level of true enlightenment um most people don't function in the world after that the majority at 600 become silent and the you don't have to stay with with your body by the way at 600 it's quite you have permission there's a standing permission um to leave the body there's no obligation at all to either leave it or not leave it and uh, uh
1: the power to choose at 600 eh
2: hmm?
1: the power to but choose
2: there isn't anybody to choose the choosingness seems to be operating of its own perhaps some karmic momentum about whether you're going to re-agree re- yourself you know continue with the body or not I remember being in that state one time which uh that state recurred and uh, it was in the presence of someone else and I realized that if I didn't reactivate the body, he would think I died. That was my father. I th- uh, and then I saw he would grieve because he believes in death. Well, in those states you realize no death is possible. But he would grieve and so I breathed again.
1: <laughs> wow. How was were you then?
2: <laughs> oh, teenage.
1: So no one else knew what you were going through in those that aging. Eh?
2: There was no one to describe it to. Um, Near death experiences were never heard of. Um, the only spiritual literature I knew of, where it was religious in nature, the experiences of the saints. Um, anyway, it was. Uh, it totally transformed the personality. It was never the same after that. What other people take seriously seemed to me as a joke.
1: Wow. Well, so you, didn't get, you found that you didn't get caught up in the drama of the surface level of things?
2: Well, after some years, there is the capacity to
4: <clears throat> uh,
2: re-energize what uh, I guess Young would call the persona the personality uh, which is not yourself interacts with the world but it does so spontaneously just like your body does that your body functions spontaneously after that and you just witness it and so does the um, what the world would call personality the interaction with the world the capacity to verbalize so to re-enter the world is uh, not easy, and to this day it takes energy to enter into the world of form, language and verbalization logic and all that, but when one becomes adept with it, um, it's like focusing one's energy without, instead of allowing it to be just within. You know. Although sometimes it goes within, and I don't know what people are talking about, frankly.
4: Can <laughs> I <laughs> go into
2: a different space for a while some kind of nonsense anyway but,
4: <laughs>
2: but I noticed the personality uh, one style it has is it's endlessly humorous and the humor comes up of its own No, I don't think of jokes or anything like that just the most amazingly funny things come through and uh, it's just a way of being in the world
1: I'm definitely convinced that God has a sense of humor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an irrepressible uh, sense of humor, and it sees paradox all the time. And that's why I was always laughing.
4: Hmm.
2: Because it sees the paradox between the real and the imaginary, which the world calls for Some you know, people will say, well, don't, don't, you, don't you worry about war and all that? Well... Because from my position, life and death are all the same. It's immaterial to me. So, so
1: what is your perspective know, of that right it's now? It's not
2: very strange, you understand what I'm saying? That life and death are all the same. If you have money, you don't have money, whether the body survives or doesn't survive. is not comprehensible to ordinary consciousness. It's sort of somewhat mad, like a Zen master sort of, you know, has the same attitude. Whether the body continues or not is really your Why? Because the body is not who you are, and the body is obviously a product of this world. You know, it's just a part of the evolution of the animal kingdom, and um, so it's sort of like a pet. Instead of being me, it's a pet, you know. <laughs> Everywhere I go, this body follows around, so I've gotten used to it all these years.
1: That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, we have a lot of conversations like this on this show, you know. But I mean, this this sort of
2: reframes it
1: in an interesting way. Mm
4: -hmm. We should
1: actually give out a website. We've got a link on our site. Actually, people can actually find your books on our site and 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 website and all of that. But uh, do you have a particular one that you want to give out? Any contact information?
2: Uh, Well, there is one that has what people are looking for. It's called www.veritas, veritas. v like in Victor. e r i t a s pub. dot com. w. period dot com. <laughs> okay, so they can get more
1: information about your latest work there and everything. Yeah. Perfect.
2: I don't know how to work a computer, but that's what it says on the <laughs>
1: Well, that's what I wanted to ask you, too, is, is what is your perspective of what's going on with you know this war on terrorism and, and uh, global sort of
4: upheaval?
2: Well, I am, in fact, giving a lecture on this coming Sunday on um, spirituality and one's, one's relationship to the world. And uh, the world, you know, as it is hitting the headlines right now, has to do with war and peace, etc., so. And what are the sources of war and peace? Well, um, my understanding of that is somewhat different. Peace is the natural condition when falsehood is removed. Therefore, war is the consequence of falsehood. So the elimination of war, then, is by the elimination of falsehood. To be able to eliminate falsehood, you have to be able to tell truth from falsehood, which mankind has never been able to do. The um, consciousness level of mankind stood at 190 all these these centuries, the last 1,000 years or so, which is below truth, because truth is at 200. Then in the late 1980s, for unexplained reasons, the consciousness level of mankind as a whole went from 190 to 207. Well, 207 is a totally different ballgame from 190. And at level 190, greed and victory over the others and all these kinds of things are excused. And when I grew up, you know, you are supposed to be a success. Uh, business was not constrained by ethics, you know. they say, well, business is business. And, um, an outright dishonesty. I can remember I was interviewed for a job where I was supposed to sell something that I could see would be, you know, non-integrous. And, uh, the sales supervisor said to me, well, look, if you don't get their money, somebody else will. <laughs> well, at 190, that makes sense, doesn't it? At 207, you say, uh oh, um, hmm. You begin to realize that, you know, you're answerable. Or not integrity, and uh, it's no longer acceptable. So the world now is going through convulsions. Become because coming from 190 to 207 upsets everything, upsets everything. So you could look at the totality of mankind as though it were one person. And you might say war is like a, uh, an appendix. It's about the rupture.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so it's a I, I bit of a say,
4: purification cleaning house?
2: Well, I, I got that Bush's intention was to take out the appendix before it ruptures and gets worse. That's what I got was his
4: hmm.
2: conscious intention, which he has sort of stated uh, many times. He said, uh, I took an oath of office with my hand on the Bible to protect the lives of the citizens and it is my duty to carry that out. So I would guess within his own understanding of integrity he is doing what he considers to be integrous.
1: But uh, that's what he t- attested to that that's what he, he believes anyway.
2: Yeah, I think that's what he does. So
1: hmm. in
2: other words a person is integrous if they state what their position is and then live to live up to that position. You know what I'm saying? Just like um, the Taliban, I guess, is integrous if they think, uh, you know, Americans are the, the, the great Satan, then killing them is integrous. So that's their view of integrity. It's different than mine. I'm glad I wasn't in the Trade Center when they carried that out.
1: <laughs> yeah, again, back to their, their relative thinking,
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, You see, mankind basically is innocent because, first of all, he has no way of knowing truth from falsehood. Secondly, human consciousness is like the the hardware of a computer, and then society programs it like the software. Well, you know the hardware of a computer cannot defend itself against what you put into it, so you can convince people that anything is the truth, and... In World War II, Gables uh, demonstrated that. He had the science of propaganda down. And his, his thesis was, if you repeat a lie often enough, everyone will come to believe it, no matter how outrageous it is. And he was quite successful at that. He brought up a whole generation of Germans who worshipped not God, but uh, Adolf Hitler as the Fuhrer and willingly gave up their lives. And, of course, that falsity caused 40 million people dead. Pot-paul caused another 20 million dead. Stalin caused another, what, 50 million dead. Supposedly in the last century, 100 million people died due to falsity. (laughs) Due to Mm. falsity. That's the sole underlying disease. So again,
1: it comes back to purity of intention then, but... Like, Hitler's intention, what was his intention?
2: His intention was that of the psychopath, which, in, which the megalomania of the grandiosity of the dictator is what the world is so ignorant it has, can't even recognize it. They think it's a leader when it's obviously a megalomaniac that will happily kill the whole populace. In fact, say that they deserved it. You know, Hitler wanted to just destroy the German people. They didn't deserve to live because they'd lost the war so the degree of megalomania don't forget i was a psychiatrist for 50 years and very few people other than experienced psychiatrists really realize that the, what the serious psychopathology of the megalomaniac that they'll they'll sign a treaty one day and as you walk out the door they're already laughing at you you can go back in history and say uh... When uh, Neville Chamberlain signed the peace agreement with Adolf Hitler prior to World War II, what was Hitler's response when he walked out the door? It was that of scorn. What an idiot. <laughs>
4: That's
2: what uh, he really doesn't think I'm going to go along with this treaty. How stupid can you be, you know? So the naivete, I think, of decent people is that we expect other people are going to play by the Marquis of Queensbury rules. They have no intention. They are street fighters. And hitting you below the belt is exactly what they intend to do. So we tend to project our own personality on other cultures and presume they are like us. They are not like us at all. Not the same values. Even the value of life itself is not valued in many societies. You would not even value being alive. Well, if you don't value being alive, what can you expect of such people? You know. <laughs> and this is part of what's what you see at play now with the conflict,
1: current conflict.
2: Right now, you see the megalomania again of uh, it, it, it's what you see is an appendix that's been neglected, see, and finally it festers, and then the world has to react and the balance of power shifts around. Well, the world's been at war throughout all of recorded time. There's no time in human history when there wasn't a war going on. In fact, at this time, people think Iraq is the only war. Iraq is not the only war. There's been half a dozen other wars going on for 20 years, and the media, it just doesn't catch the glamour of this war. This war is very glamorous. Wars are glamorous. In Africa, there's civil wars that have been going on for 20 years with savagery that makes Saddam Hussein look like a Boy Scout. They butcher each other and cut each other's legs off and disembowel each other and take their brains out while they're still alive. I mean, that's routine in Rwanda, Uganda, places like that. The U.N. just doesn't pay any attention to that because it doesn't make headlines. It doesn't make headlines, so there's no big money involved in it. If all those people in those African nations had great wealth, oh, uh, then everybody, the U.N., and everybody would be all over it. They're poor countries, so who cares? They kill each other. The Civil War has been going on for 20 years there. They massacre each other day and night, round the clock. Nobody cares. Have
1: you ever uh, worked out what the calibration is of, yes, of the mainstream media?
2: Yeah, uh, it's in the 300s. Um, that high, huh? <laughs> so, yeah, well, it is. Not all the media, um, but about
4: um, news in general.
2: It's up around 400 or so, but the main media is in the 300s. Uh, NBC News, CBS News, all those. You know.
4: Hmm.
2: So that's above 200. That's Integris. Um, it, it's not highly intelligent. Highly intelligent would be in the 400s. So what they consider a balanced view is often quite skewed. Yeah,
1: well, you know, one thing we've noticed with with questions and and interaction with our since particularly since 9-11 and since, you know, the war on terrorism and all this stuff, is people's trust level, because they're awakening more and questioning more, their trust level of a lot of things seems to be questioning, you know, everything. And uh, we get a lot of questions about, you know, whether to trust the official story, whether to trust any mainstream media coverage and where, where the information is really coming from. They're questioning everything, basically, which I guess is
2: good in the sense of waking up.
1: So what was your take on that?
2: Yes, yes. I think the effect of this war is um, everyone on the planet more or less re-examining their own view of ethics, morality, responsibility, uh, what is the difference between nationalism and patriotism, uh, I think everybody's sort of re-examining their values. It's like a confrontation, a moral confrontation. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore, it certainly has a certain uh, therapeutic value. and in crisis always forces people to re-examine their values and goals, and the meaning of life, and what they're willing to die for, if anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or what they're willing to have other people die for, usually.
4: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I remember one woman, you know, I'm being interviewed on television, and she comes out of some revolutionary cause, you know, and a lot of people died, and uh, so the uh, commentator said to her, "Well, what about all the people that died?" She said, "Well, um, some people have, you know, uh, that's just the price of uh, the cause." Cause she meant her cause. <laughs> cause that she was championing and whether all the people who died wanted to die for her cause is another question, you
4: know. <laughs> Isn't it, though? So
1: how do people take this into, like, what's the first step for people listening as far as applying this application, power versus force, into their lives?
2: Be aware that, um, number one, the human mind is incapable of telling truth from falsehood. That, first of all, is a confront to the ego because everybody's ego thinks they can tell truth from falsehood. However, when you calibrate the people on this planet, you find that only 20% of the people are above 200. 80% of the people on the planet calibrate below 200, which is below the level of integrity, meaning they are run by um, desire, fear, loss, greed, get-evenness, being right, winning. It's really the minority of the people on the planet that hold humanity together and of course the reason they do is because they're so far more powerful so when you calibrate these energies you're calibrating levels of power Uh, people at the bottom are very destructive and, and more numerous than people at the top but the people at the top have more power in that their consciousness tends to dominate the field So, people who are dedicated to peace, sincerity, um, compassion, love, charity, uh, they radiate into the world an energy field which counterbalances thousands of people who are thinking negative thoughts. The negative thoughts are weak. They're weak by comparison. So, all you need is one field of gravity to hold the whole universe together. So, those elements in society which uphold uh, truth then tend to counterbalance so that the world doesn't disappear into self-destruction. You we're know? close to it. In the 80s, the Russians had a great super bomb design which if they lost the war with the United States would destroy all life on Earth. Yeah. And they were actually into this super nuclear bomb
1: how intelligent is that, eh? Yeah.
2: <laughs> we'll
4: show them.
1: Yeah.
2: When you look at the degree to which the human mind is prone to madness, you know, the way, you know, right now on the other side of the world are people who believe that, uh, you know, the suicide bombers, that, you know, you go to heaven if you blow up a busload of 30 children on the way to school. I mean, that's madness of such a, an extreme degree. Extreme degree. I mean, really extreme. And that thousands of people can actually believe that is frightening. To tell you the truth, it's frightening to think that.
1: The well, bottom line is we can evolve to higher levels, right? When like just because we calibrate now today at a certain level, we can evolve to a higher level.
2: Yes, but but we're extremely fortunate. We're extremely rare, and uh, to be able to reason, to look at logic and truth, and examine what is truth, is really quite a rare gift. And. uh so people who are more conscious and aware and dedicated to spiritual principles, you know, are, are really quite rare, numerically speaking, numerically speaking, but their power on the planet is quite, quite enormous.
1: So true power, much stronger than force, grow as our awareness
4: goes up, is that right?
2: That, that's the evolution of consciousness, and the spiritually oriented person their consciousness is moving faster than the rest of the human race so they're often at some disparity with the way the populace may view something because they're moving ahead and their goal is not worldly gain but internal uh, realization of the truth and so their goals are somewhat at disparity the world is primarily interested in being right and winning those are the only two things they really care about win and be right
1: Well, we have our work cut out for us, don't we? (laughs) But um, I thank you for joining us today. This has been a very enlightening hour, and I hope we can do it again. I'd love to talk to you when your next book comes out.
2: Okay, thank you so much. All
1: right, thank you, Dr. Hawkins. Bye. Okay, bye.
5: May I say that I have heard this before, and the and the chat room is reminding me of this that that you're considered the Oprah of the internet airwaves. I would say so. You're bringing so much information, and your own an angel network, like Oprah has her angelic network, Here's is spiritual network, and it is powerful. Hey, this is Dave Morehouse, and you're listening to News for the Soul.
1: I know, Cole. I just think you're awesome. I love your show. But I just wanted to let you know that. You're great, and thank you for your show. Thank you for your love. Thank you for all the people that you have on. Bye. I've just been enthralled. I've listened to, you know, so much in the archives. I have turned so many people on to uh, listening. I just think it's fabulous. I definitely want to um, be able to support you in your endeavors.
6: Nicole, it's Chris Angel. Carl, congratulations, you're back on the air. Um, I've just listened to the Jay-Z interview. First of all, I've just got to absolutely compliment you on giving one of the most unbelievable interviews. I've never heard somebody winkle pick somebody out of themselves and sum themselves up in one hour was an, a work of genius, Nicole. No wonder these people are, are like uh, asked after the thing, talking about you and saying how wonderful it was, It was incredible. And secondly, was the information. She absolutely blew me away. I mean, unbelievable, freaky, but we're going there. You know that. We're all going there.
1: I'm in San Diego, and I was somewhere on your website. Uh, by the way, it's changed my whole life. I love it. I'm really blessed by your your project, what you're doing to be able to share on the
4: air is just an amazing thing.
0: It's not just a show, it's a movement. You're listening to News for the Soul, the number one life-changing radio show in the world according to Google and AOL, and the largest free life-changing audio resource on the web. We feature the top luminaries in the evolution of human consciousness and have kept all of our shows all free all of the time for the world to hear. In a recent listener survey, News for the Soul listeners responded with overwhelming appreciation and praise, which they summarized with this one powerful statement. News for the Soul is not just a show. It's a movement. Go to newsforthesoul.com to see for yourself. That's newsforthesoul.com. How would you like to learn how to bend metal with your mind for real? Well, you can. News for the Soul is home to the one and only Spoon Bending Kit, an instantly downloadable digital gift that contains two hours of audio and visual instructions designed to get your mind out of the way and teach you how to truly affect solid matter just with your thoughts. Find out once and for all how you are affecting your reality with every thought you think. Don't let anything block you from creating the life that you want. Download the NewsForTheSoul.com Spoon Bending Kit today. Just go to NewsForTheSoul.com. Right now, that's NewsforThesoul.
3: For years, News for the Soul listeners have had a direct experience with their power to create their reality through our exclusive Spoon Bending Kit, a mind-over-matter training that teaches you how to bend metal with your mind for real Well, what if you can use that same technology on your finances? What if you can take your same intention power and use it on the so-called recession? Well, you can. News for the Soul has just announced the release of its newest life-changing kit, the Prosperity Kit. We have combined the intention technology of our spoon-bending kits with a decade of research to create a program that has the power to change your financial life. Isn't it time to transcend fear and live the way we intended? For real? Go now to newsforthesoul.com and click on the Prosperity Kit banner. That's newsforthesoul.com. It's not just a show. It's a
0: movement. You're listening to News for the Soul, the number one life-changing radio show in the world according to Google and AOL and the largest free life-changing audio resource on the web. That's newsforthesoul.com.
6: Circumstances don't matter. Only. Underline, 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 underline. Only. Your state of being matters. Big fat period. Exclamation point. When someone says, well, you know, I simply got into the state where I believed I would simply receive more checks, your physical, logical, reasonable mind goes,
4: where the heck are they
6: supposed to come from? I haven't done anything to earn that money. What are you saying? That some stranger just suddenly going to get into his head to pop a check in the mail to me for no reason whatsoever and I'm just going to go to my mailbox and open a check that comes from a total stranger that's suddenly giving me exactly what I want? Yes! Yes, that is what's being said. When you stop needing it to make sense, then you'll make dollars.
1: Tonight on the show, James Ray is back. The quote-unquote practical mystic has some tales that are more out on the limb tonight. You're not going to want to miss any of this discussion. Let's go now to our interview with James Ray.
5: Hey, this is Dave Morehouse, and you're listening to News for the Soul. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be back. Um, Always a pleasure. Where do we begin? It's been very transformative for me, as we talked about last time. We're in this window, as you know, between now and 2012, which gives us just a little bit more than six years. I go off on my grand adventures to study with the ancients and to study the mystery schools and to have altered states of consciousness and to continually decrease resistance in the zero-point field, so that I can continually become greater and greater aware and greater and greater a practitioner, of
0: bringing into alignment my thoughts, my feelings, and my body, or my actions and emotions, and to the degree you do that, you literally create anything and everything you want. Because
1: he's here, he's back, and we're excited about that. Dr. Bruce Lipton, who you recall, uh... to
6: meet the demands of the outside world. Now, all this is getting complicated, except for the fact that a human is made in the image of a cell and why that's interesting because then from that parallel story i would have to say well then the skin of the human is the brain and in fact it is (laughs) Uh, and that's from an embryology point of view that the human
2: brain is derived from the skin so i'm going through these thick woods and after walking about 100 yards or so i saw it i saw the big black bird just as in my dream and uh... you know I'm, i'm
3: Not exaggerating. This bird is four feet tall.
1: Well, I saw pictures of that at your event, right? Mm -hmm. That's the bird you're talking about? Yeah. Have you got pictures in the book?
5: Yeah, there's a picture in the third book.
1: I mean that's wild. Those pictures were trippy. Tom Campbell is back, the physicist and author of My Big Toe Trilogy, that's Theory of Everything, and the website is my-big-toe.com, and we're here for another amazing out-there discussion based on science and research that Tom has done. Welcome back, Tom Campbell, to News for the Soul.
6: Thank you, Nicole. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. uh, That sort of research out at uh, Monroe Laboratories, what it was called at that time, uh, wanting to understand... um, These phenomena such as...
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to News for the Soul. This is Daniel Brinkley.
1: Nicole Whitney News for the Soul life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. Okay
5: everybody take a deep breath. We know that we choose to come to this world and we're chosen to come to this world and we've come for breath. We breathe in for ourselves and out for spiritual unfoldment. And as we breathe these moments let's open up our heart and open up our souls and let the true awareness of News for the Soul make its impact now and forever.
1: Good afternoon, good evening everybody, I'm Nicole Whitney and it's News for the Soul Time, we're live and that is life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. Definitely we should have both of those ends covered today because we're talking about death, well near-death, near-death experiences and to do that we're going to be bringing on our guest for the hour, Dr. Jeffrey Long of the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. That you can find online at Enderf Dot org N-D-E-R-S dot org And he's actually a practicing physician out of Tacoma, Washington And he's done years of research in this field Has lots of stories to tell So today we embark on the adventure What we're going to do is take the commercials now Get them all out of the way We can go straight through to the top of the hour With Dr. Jeffrey Long on News for the Soul Don't go away
0: It's not just a show. It's a movement. You're listening to News for the Soul, the number one life-changing radio show in the world according to Google and AOL, and the largest free life-changing audio resource on the web. We feature the top luminaries in the evolution of human consciousness and have kept all of our shows all free all of the time for the world to hear. In a recent listener survey, News for the Soul listeners responded with overwhelming appreciation and praise, which they summarized with this one powerful statement. News for the Soul is not just a show. It's a movement. Go to newsforthesoul.com to see for yourself. That's newsforthesoul.com.
5: hear all of our
1: previously aired broadcasts of news for the soul online at news now let's get back to the show and we're back i'm nicole whitney and this is news for the soul we're live life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained i think we've got it covered And I think we've got Dr. Jeffrey Long on the line now. As we mentioned before, going to break, we're talking about near-death experiences on News for the Soul. Now, Dr. Long has done extensive research. You can find him online at nderf.org. And let's welcome him on and start the adventure. Dr. Long, welcome to News for
5: the Soul. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. We've got hey, a lot my- to talk about, believe me.
1: We do. Well, this is one of our favorite topics here because of course it's one of the uh, most fear-generating topic, you know, for the mainstream kind of world and you've done a lot of research as far as what happens potentially after we die. So, I want to start kind of how you got into this, you know, what drew you to doing this work, this research.
5: Oh, absolutely. And that's a really good question. Here I am a physician, and you know from all of you that have interacted with physicians, we're very evidence-based people. We tend not to believe things that are outside of reproducible everyday, you know, somewhat narrowed reality type of thinking. And yet here I am as a physician that is studying extensively near-death experience. Well, the way I got started actually is quite interesting. Many, many years ago, I had an experience that that literally rocked my life, and we could get into that if we have time. but it led me to understand that there is clearly something going on outside of everyday normal reality, and I understood that deep down to the soul at that point in time and i, I it was actually four years later that I understood that it was a spiritual experience, and so that got me to thinking. What does that mean? What, what do I mean by a spiritual experience? What, what is that greater reality? What can I really learn? And so part of that, that journey, part of that search, led me to develop the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. And so I set up a website. It's nderf.org, and the sole purpose of that website was for people to share experiences where they nearly died and had an experience that was dramatic, that where they were lucid, that occurred when they were unconscious, which should be medically inexplicable, and yet happened. And I wanted to learn from that. I wanted to, I guess, you could say early on I was somewhat selfish. I wanted to people to share and, and basically extend themselves so that I could learn. And that was over 10 years ago. Uh, at this point so in time, can you th- give us the
1: nutshell version of what happened to you before you move forward so we, we can yeah. kind of relate yeah. to your adventure there?
5: Oh, absolutely. It was one of these dreams that is absolutely not a dream uh in this It was really more of a vision that the technical term as I've grown now after having thousands of people share their experiences with me, it was a true vision. And as part of this vision, I saw a very mystical light that was unlike anything that could possibly exist on earth, and then, as part of that vision, I absolutely died. I don't think I died, maybe died, possibly in this vision, I understood that I died. And as I was coming back towards earthly reality, it came to the point where I, basically a uh, same sense that I'd had with prior dreams that that, that came true or that I understood were, were real happened, but but ten hundred times more fold than I'd ever experienced before. And so I really understood that this was a real, real experience. And there were some other things that were highly collaborative to me at the time. Understand, I'm a very evidence-based physician. I treat cancer. I can't afford to let false hope or, or wishful thinking guide my evidence-based decision, where people's lives literally depend on it. And so it was the same soul search here. It had to be that so- same type of reality, that same type of profound, deep understanding that this was real before I would even start the search. And boy, believe me, after that experience, I was ready to start the search.
1: So you put the website together and, and started searching just over a decade ago. Mm-hmm. What kind of, uh, I mean, how did you start collecting
5: the stories? Well, I was curious. That, you know, after a period of, of many, many years, I came to that, understand that I had a spiritual experience, and that there was something more going on in the universe than than you could necessarily measure or objectively quantify by every scientific tool that I had been taught my entire life. That there was much, much going going on in terms of us as beings than I had ever been taught in medical school. and So as part of of me learning that, I turned to the greatest mentors that I possibly could, that being people that have actually had near-death experiences. So in August 1998, I set up the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation on NDERF, and that was the beginning of the journey.
1: And what did you start finding out?
5: Well, I I was Uh, open-minded. I've always thank goodness tended to be open-minded and say be very evidence-based so the evidence had to lead me to my conclusions that I have today and the evidence that I was relying on were people sharing those most exceptional experiences that they would ever had in their life near-death experiences I didn't know what I would find when I first put up the website in fact it actually wasn't although I started in August 1998 with the website it wasn't until December 1998 That I could download our first batch of 22 people that miraculously had found my website, even though it was not highly ranked in the search engines at that time. And downloaded it and said, well, well, teach me, show me what you have seen, share what you've seen through your own eyes with what you can share with me in words. And I was, I was blown away. I was absolutely astounded. There was no doubt immediately after reading even less than the first two dozen people that ever shared with me that clearly, Something can happen at the time of death. You can have, even while unconscious, even while clinically deaf, uh, you can have these types of highly lucid, organized experiences. And I was astounded, intrigued. Even back in 1998, there seemed to be an amazing pattern to these experiences. I was astonished, and I wanted to learn more. So I encouraged people to continue sharing on the website. And now today, 1,600 people have shared near-death experiences and I've learned, shall we say, one heck of a lot more.
1: So, I mean, I'm trying to kind of go back in time a little bit as you're talking because, Uh uh, you know, these were, now it's sort of become a stereotypical image of, you know, leaving the body and going down the tunnel of light and the life review and all that stuff and the being of light at the end of it. You know, is this sort of still the typical um, vision that happens most times?
5: Well, you know, I have to admit something. Here's a true confession. I also had that stereotypical view of near-death experience when I started researching this. I'd read Raymond Moody and some of the other very early works about near-death experience, and there's sort of a media model about near-death experience that's really pretty much exactly as you just described to the listeners. You have that out-of-body experience. You see your your body often not breathing, uh, often without a heartbeat. You go through the tunnel. You may have intensely positive feelings There's that mystical light at the end of the tunnel you may encounter deceased relatives you may have a life review and very often there's that border or seeming end of the experience where a decision has to be made about returning to earth or not and uh, interestingly most people don't want to return at that point in time because they they really understand they're in a place far better than earth and yet for a variety of reasons people do return to earth and then some of them tell their tale with this and so even though you say there's a stereotypical or a preconceived model of the near-death experience. Let me assure you and your listeners that there are no two near-death experiences that I've ever encountered, out of out of over a thousand, that are absolutely the same. Every two near-death experiences are absolutely different. And yet, throughout, by the time you review that many near-death experiences I have, that type of consistency, that type of pattern, is overwhelmingly clear. There's no doubt that that's a part of the pattern even if no two near death experiences are the same.
1: Interesting. i don't know don't know if you were aware, but for the first two years of News for the Soul Radio my co host was daniel Brinkley, so of course I had picked his brain extensively on the issue whenever I could. <laughs> I know and, Daniel uh, well,
5: I've met him personally. He's a he's a heck of a great guy.
1: I I used to call him famous dead guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so maybe many famous
5: dead guy times too he died twice as you know. <laughs>
1: And uh, yeah, so but he definitely had that sort of you know um, pattern happening in his. So what other things have you found over the years then that don't fit that pattern?
5: Well, again, you know, since no two near death experiences are the same, we we found a whole lot about this. Uh, you know, I guess what's more impressive is to me is that there really is a pattern. I mean, when when you when your heart stops beating, when you clinically die. Of course, once your heart stops beating, immediately blood flow stops flowing to your brain. I mean, obviously. But a number of researchers have studied electroencephalogram measurements of brain activity. That's brain electrical activity. And very clearly and consistently across multiple studies, 10 to 15 seconds after your heart stops beating, you do not have any brain electrical activity. So, therefore, at that point in time, it is absolutely impossible to have a conscious, lucid, organized experience. You cannot have a memory at that point in time. It is. The way we understand medicine, the way I was taught medicine, it is medically inexplicable. And yet, that is the time that people have near-death experiences. That's a time they're in that out-of-body phase. They see the resuscitation efforts. We've had, oh, gosh, if I had a nickel for every near-death experience that described a flat EKG, measurement of their heart activity, over and over and over. So there's no question that that's the time that it really happens. This should be impossible, and yet thousands and thousands of people, in fact, a Gallup poll published in 1982 suggested that about 5% of Americans have had a near-death experience. So millions of people, and undoubtedly many people listening to this show tonight, have had a near-death experience. It should be absolutely medically inexplicable. There's no medical explanation at all, and yet, without any shadow of a doubt, it's really, really happening.
1: You, as a physician, too. I mean, have you encountered this with patients?
5: You know, what's really interesting is that, as a physician, I am very aware. And I'm a. Let me back up a little bit. I'm. The physicians all have medical specialties. My medical specialty is radiation oncology. I use radiation to treat cancer. I'm a specialist. Patients that have cancer have seen other doctors almost always by the time they see me. They know they have cancer. They know that radiation might have an important role to help them potentially even cure their life. So that's all been the conversation or understanding patients have when they come and see me. They're really not there to say, oh, Dr. Long, let me tell you about this near-death experience I had. You really have to draw that out from them. In fact, I've been doing this for so many years and been on so many media events, including, but not limited to, ABC News with Peter Jennings, Fox News, the Learning Channel, on and on and on, and innumerable radio shows such as this one. So probably more often than not, when people are aware that Dr. Long has studied near-death experience, it's not because I tell them or because they asked or because they feel so moved at the time of our consultation or... or Physician-patient interactions to share it. It's because they talk to other staff, and they say, "Hey, you know that Dr. Long? He's, you, know, you ought to talk to him if you've had a near-death experience. He he he's interested in that." Or, much more commonly, they go to the website and say, "Well, if I'm going to trust my life to this Dr. Jeffrey Long, who is he?" And they learn something from him on the internet. And of course, if you go to the internet, my near-death experience website is so prominently uh There that it 's very very obvious very quickly to anybody that looks up my name that that 's my interest, and so that 's been mm-hmm. the great majority of patients that share their near death experience kind of had that i won 't hate to say permission because i i share you know I give permission to anybody to share with me, but they really feel that it 's okay based on awareness of my openness and acceptance and research and near death experience to share with me, and that 's how it happens
1: so Putting all this together over these years of collecting the research and the stories, um, what if, maybe give us a couple examples of something that just really made you know that there was something huge going on here, that this was real and absolute.
5: Okay. That's a great question. And I will tell you my very first near-death experience I ever encountered as a physician. I was back in Iowa City, Iowa, where I did my residency training, And in the wintertime in Iowa, guess what? There's not a whole heck of a lot you can do. You go out and throw back some brews like a lot of other people do in (laughs) Iowa City. But I had some friends visiting from Chicago, and my friend had a wife. I knew him from college. I was in my residency training in my medical specialty of radiation oncology. And my friend's wife was there, and, and she was just, off that she had had an allergic reaction while she was undergoing an operation coded and died on the operating table and that was all she said. Well, I said, huh, she said that in such an odd and mystical and almost questioning manner, and uh, I didn't get it. So I, I paused for 30 seconds and literally my entire future research um, potential laid in limbo as I thought about whether I would or would not ask that one critical question. I finally did. After about a half a minute, I said, and I, I knew I would potentially feel stupid about asking this, but I said, "Hey, you know, I'm a doctor. I could ar- blame it on a few brews." I threw back. So I asked the critical question: "Okay, you died on the operating room table. They they measure that with heart beats. You know that that you're monitored very carefully. When when they say you died, they know they died. So you died on the operating room table. Um, did anything happen after that? Did anything possibly happen?" And, you know, I thought that was stupid. I mean, you can't, you're can't. you under general anesthesia, so you can have no memory during that time, right? And you have a cardiac arrest. Remember I said in 10 to 15 seconds your electroencephalogram goes flat and you can't have a memory, right? So you have two independently functioning reasons why she could not possibly have had an organized memory of what happened next. But I asked, and that was the most significant, profound, and meaningful question potentially I've ever asked in my life. And she said immediately after I asked it, "Why, well, yes, I, I do have a memory. I do have a recollection. She had what's very typical of out of, of near-death experiences, A very even though she had absolutely no possible reason medically for her to have an organized memory at the time, she believed me, she did. She had an out-of-classic, out-of-body experience. She saw the frantic resuscitation efforts going on. Now, her near-death experience was amazing in the fact that her consciousness drifted from that point out of body outside of the operating room into the nursing area where she had been an inpatient at the hospital and from that vantage point she could see and hear what the nurses were saying at the time she was clinically dead under general anesthesia and being resuscitated far away in an operating room and if that doesn't boggle your mind it should
4: mm-hmm.
1: and she was
5: right I mean she later confirmed everything she saw and you a know I've heard a lot of life- stories
1: like that where people went into other rooms or confirmed things that they couldn't have known, you know, sure. that were going on while they were out. We've heard
5: a lot of those stories, so that certainly oh, gives Oh, absolutely, pause. including from Danyan. Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody needs to take a step back and say, even though you've heard those stories, take a step back and understand that that is absolutely, I mean, impossible is an overused word, but if you're under general anesthesia, if you have no blood flowing to your brain, to have a highly organized conscious experience, whether your consciousness is outside and far removed from that area, and furthermore, if your observations are absolutely later proven to be correct, that is impossible. And that's exactly what I heard on my first near-death experience. That's what I heard relayed to me. And I said, you know, and, and then she went through the tunnel and had a life review, and you know, met all sorts of deceased relatives, and uh, very, very intensely positive, pleasant emotions as is typical of near-death experiences. And I said, this is incredible. I said, if that is true, if upon hearing my first near-death experience, hearing what undoubtedly your listeners have heard in the past on this show, if that's really true, then that really changes my view of the universe. And that's what led to me developing my near-death experience website and learning more about it and basically trying to nail down, is this true or is this not? And that's been my journey for the last 10 years.
1: Well, that's the thing. It it has to change your view of the universe. If if you know if that many people are having you know things that you can confirm and back up and you know compare with scientific data. I mean, what about all of these theories that they throw at you as far as what might be causing these you know uh, so-called. Near death things. I mean, they call them hallucinations or
5: uh-huh.
1: dream state things, or you know. <laughs> okay,
5: well, well. Let, uh, I, I don't. I, I hesitate to interrupt, but you, you mentioned two words, hallucinations and dreams. And I want I want to review, to the extent we have time, every possible alternative explanation for near death experience that you can possibly come up with. So let's start with those two. Hallucinations, medically speaking, hallucination is an unreal um, perceptual experience which the bottom line is has no basis in reality. I've talked to innumerable patients that have had hallucinations under a variety of circumstances due to lack of oxygen, due to uh, drug experiences, due to uh, uh, psychotic uh, separations. What is extremely clear to me and every other researcher, and there's been a whole bunch that have looked at this, is that and even at this point in time, even the most stern and rigid skeptics of near-death experiences, none of them, including myself or anybody else, believes that near-death experiences are hallucinations. Clearly, clearly there's something going on that is absolutely apart from what we medically consider to be a hallucination. I I could talk for literally an hour on that. I won't. talk your ears off. You want to keep your ears on. (laughs) So do your listeners. So let's, you know, trust me on this, that that no skeptic that exists in the world today thinks uh, that near-death experiences are hallucinations. But what about dreams? You've had dreams. I've had dreams. Every one of your listeners has probably had a dream where they, they had some type of a remarkable, dramatic experience. Um, they may have felt they were in a different world, I mean, mammothly different from everyday earthly reality. Why aren't near-death experiences dreams? How do I know? Well, let me tell you. The very first survey, when I put it up on the website to study near-death experiences, I asked the very open-ended question... Was your experience dreamlike in any way? And I deliberately worded it that way because I wanted people to say, yes, it was dreamlike if it was dreamlike in any way. And that's actually biased, the way I worded the question, for people to say if it was dreamlike and even a, a microcosm, a fraction, a minutia part of the experience you know, that was dreamlike. I wanted to hear about it. And do you know why I'm no longer answering that question? Do, do you yeah. want to know? Because the feedback I got from that was overwhelming. Virtually everybody that answered that said not only no, but hell no. It's like, don't you understand? Don't you get it? I mean, this wasn't even close to being dreamlike. I mean, virtually everybody's had dreams. So people that have had near-death experiences that shared on my website, virtually all of them have had dreams, and they know the difference. They can compare and contrast them. If they were at all similar in any way, I would expect to see some significant percentage of positive answers, affirmative answers. There were none, essentially none. Virtually everybody said no, no way. There is no resemblance at all. And so the bottom line is our work, consistent with the work of multiple other researchers, is absolutely clear. And, in fact, I might add, even the sternest, most unreasonable and hardcore Uh, bizarre skeptics of near-death experience no longer think that near-death experiences have anything to do with dreams. They don't. People that have had near-death experiences know that. They've told me times hundreds. There is no resemblance between a near-death experience and a dream. None. Absolutely none at all.
1: Well, also you were saying if there's no brain uh, activity at the point, you know, you're talking about after that point, how could they be dreaming anyway?
5: Yeah, you know, you raised a really good point, and I'm glad you brought that up. If you have a flat electroencephalogram, which is a measure of brain electrical activity, you can't dream, you can't think, you can't have even fragmented memories. You can't have frightening, disorganized memories. You've got nothing. Flat is flat. I mean, you know, we all watch the TV shows and the movies where electroencephalograms go flat. Well, that tells you there's no heart activity. This is an order of magnitude worse this is no brain electrical activity you've got nothing you have no potential to form even the most rudimentary primitive disorganized thought there is no medical explanation for any memory whatsoever at that point in time and yet as i said that's when people have these conscious remembrances of near-death experiences the near-death experiences that's when they remember things that's when they see themselves being resuscitated that's when they're having these out-of-body experiences. And to reiterate my previous point, there is absolutely no medical explanation for a conscious memory at that point in time.
1: And they come back different sometimes.
5: Oh, do they? I'm writing a book chapter on how they come back different. Um, you want to hear about it?
1: I sure do. <laughs> I'll
5: bet you do. I'll bet your your listeners do. Hold on to your seat because... What happens when you nearly die? What happens when you visit those heavenly realms? Why on earth do you return? How does that change you? How do you live life differently if you know that life isn't the end point? How do you know, how do you live life if you know that you're not gonna die, that death isn't really the end, if there's much, much more to our earthly existence than we ever possibly knew? Well, obviously that's been a a tremendously significant topic to me, and as well as a number of near-death experience researchers Now, the interesting thing is we've all come up with exactly the same conclusions. I don't want to boast, but I will a little bit, and that is our 1,600 near-death experiences we've reviewed nearly doubles um, or at least duplicates the entire prior published near-death experience research known in the history of the world. So, you know, I'm not saying this just based on, A small number of near-death experiences. I'm saying this based on the fact that I have personally reviewed, studied, analyzed, and reached conclusions from a mammoth number of experiences. And moreover, I've read what basically anybody else has written about what we call near-death experience after effects is written. And here's really the bottom line. It takes near-death experiencers after their experience a lot of time to process and learn and grow from their experience. I mean, take a step back. Put yourself in the in the in the shoes of somebody who's had a near-death experience, they they nearly died, they came very very close to death. I mean, they're they're physically recovering, their body is mending, uh, they're trying to deal with the fact and deal with their friends, family, and loved ones from from nearly dying, and that's a a process that takes a while. It takes a few months, usually to years. It actually takes, on the average, and this is a little bit of a startling statistic for most pe- most people, but it's been pr- Pretty well documented, it takes many years, perhaps as many as an average of seven years for people to fully integrate their near-death experience into their life, to really learn to some substantial degree the lessons that that experience has to teach them. So what exactly are these lessons? What are are we talking about? Well, first and foremost, almost all near-death experiencers no longer fear death. That should be obvious, they experienced death. They saw what happened after death they're not afraid in fact they realize that it was an enormously positive pleasant experience they realize that our time on earth is you know this isn't an endpoint this is simply a step on our spiritual journey that there is an afterlife and it's wonderful and in fact it is vastly more vastly more positive than their experience on earth and they understand that not from from faith or not from hope but from personal experience and so of course virtually none of them fear death but above and beyond that Um, They have a very much more positive attitude toward life. They understand that their time on earth is meaningful and purposeful, that we're here for a reason, that there's lessons to be learned. They're much more positive in their loving relationships. Oh, goodness. Can I editorialize just a little bit? Will you give me permission? Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. If you can find a near-death experiencer, seek them out. Uh, Talk with them. And especially if you can form a relationship with a near-death experiencer, they tend to be, and this is sort of, you know, not widely known, but they tend to be much more loving individuals. They've sort of seen that ultimate love, that ultimate consciousness, that ultimate expression of what we're all here for. Uh, People that can really relate to near-death experiencers at the level that they've really learned is important. They're much more positive in their relationships. They're much more deep, much more profound. They value relationships much more. Um, They're how can I say this gently, they're they're great spouses, they're great soulmates, they're great people that you want to know in, in any aspect of your life. They have a lot to teach and learn, and, and they have a lot to share. But there's more to it than that. I mean, above and beyond that, near-death experiencers, um, you know, while it may be, you know, of course they're, they've, they've been through a lot through their near-death experience, but yet above and beyond that, they tend to be much more positive. They tend to be much more optimistic. Uh, they tend to, to value life more. Um, they, they tend to reduce their, their desire to achieve monetary wealth, believe it or not. I mean, and that, that is a slap in the face of all that we ever learned as capitalists, but it's true. I see that over and over and over, and so do many other near-death experience researchers. Money isn't the end point of why we are here. It's love. It's loving relationships. It's learning our lessons and that that's much, much more important than the dollar you make at the end of the day. That is a profound lesson that substantial majority of near-death experiencers after a while grow to understand, and it really changes them. It changes their values, their perceptions, and uh, very often near-death experiencers change the job they have so they can better reflect those values.
1: Are you um, saying that all of the over 1,000 reports that you've uh, brought in from near-death experiencers they're all they all had a positive near-death experience
5: <laughs> well gosh over a thousand near-death experiences absolutely not the first thing i learned as a near-death experience researcher is that every time i say always or never i'm wrong again um, there is no absolute about near-death experiencers they're, uh, The experiences people are have are are legion they're varied so by the time you get to 1000 near death experiencers there's always that 1 2 3 or 4% that have very different very unusual experiences and well you've talked to Danian Brinkley and I suspect you've talked to other near death experiencers so I'll bet you know what I know is that a few percent of near death experiences can be frightening or even hellish is that is that where we're headed
1: um yeah well i would, i mean I was at least having i understand they'd have that different perspective whether it was a positive or, or negative experience like they went okay. somewhere
5: or did something but oh, absolutely. do they
1: all not fear death or no
5: maybe uh ninety five ninety eight percent don't fear death um uh, i mean I'll never say you know i don't want to generalize about people because that's wrong, and that's not really true every everybody there's so many individuals here, and they have their own background, even people that have such a profound experience as a near death experience you know you cannot say one hundred percent of these people will go on to have this belief that it just simply doesn't happen that way. I can tell you that compared to the population that has not had a near near death experience, it's overwhelming how little the near death experiencers do not fear death, how much they value loving relationships, how how relatively little they value materialism in this world we live in. There's no question about that as being a unmistakable trend, not not seen by just me, but actually by many, many researchers before me. But yeah, there's uh, and you know we talk about positive near death experiences. We talked about overwhelmingly positive feelings. In fact a lot of near death experiencers, I think Danian was one of them who said during their experience, they realize that earth is not their home. I mean, are you all Mm -hmm. sitting down and listening to this? That's startling, isn't it? I mean, a little bit. We we live, we were born here, we lived through this. Isn't earth our home? I mean, what what, what, what else could be home if earth isn't our home? And yet that's the startling realization, the startling wisdom, if you will, that near-death experiences are sharing with me and, and everybody else in the world that listens to them, and that is this isn't our real home. Our real home is that realm that they existed in, that where they're uh, living in that that very positive, that overwhelmingly uh, blissful area. I mean, the landscapes of beauty beyond anything that exists on this earth where where all of the people that ever died before them are with them and in full health. That's their home, and it's not an illusionary home. It is a real home. What makes it tough on near-death experiencers to realize that they're not living in their home right here, that their home lies beyond... That their lone home lies, if you will, in heaven what about um, I mean how do you
1: come from a knowing on that? you know like i know you've you've had a lot of research done over many years, and there's a lot of um, common ground and and none of them feel that it was you know a dream kind of state yeah, uh-huh. or whatever, Absolutely. and it was very real for them. How do you know?
5: Boy, that's the million dollar question. Okay, are you sitting down? I'm gonna that's a very important question and I wish wish more people would ask me that. You and probably all of your listeners are saying, hey, this is really interesting. Here's a physician, here's a guy who's listened to over one thousand near death experiences, and he's not talking using words hypothesis or possible or probable. I seem to be using words that express a knowing, and you're very intuitive to pick up on that and very correct I might add. I seem to be talking as if I have a sense that that this is deeper than just simply wishful thinking or or possibilities, and I'll be very glad to address that. I guess you have to take a step back and know me. I mean, you you hear me talk like this, it would be hard for you or others that are listening to this program to understand that Dr. Long is a very evidence-based physician. I make my decisions based solely on evidence. I want to say, I mean, prove me is my mantra. Prove it to me. Prove, prove to me that that is the way things are, that that's the way things really exist. And in the event that you can't or won't prove it to me, I don't, I don't believe it. And so based on that background, which I have felt and continue to feel to this day, I have looked at the evidence of near-death experience. I have looked critically at how much can I believe these out-of-body experiences, how accurate were their observations in the out-of-body state, Medically speaking, from my own medical background, how accurate were their observations of their own resuscitation? I'll give you a hint. It's not like what you see on TV. (laughs) It's different. I've lived it in the real world. I know how it really goes. And that's what the near-death experiencers describe. Well, what about when they, like the first near-death experience I experienced, how accurate are their observations even away from their own physical body? How do you know? How can you verify that? I've gone through this hundreds of times. I've made a formal study of this using the best scientific methods that I possibly can and a variety of other aspects of near-death experience. And so the short version of this, by the way, I'm writing a book, and you're one of the first people to hear about this, where I'm going to go into this in detail. And I wouldn't believe just my comments without seeing it in detail myself either. But believe me, what I'm going to document in this book, we're using the best scientific methods that I possibly can, scientific methods, accepted by any serious, credible scientist anywhere else in the world, I have documented to my own satisfaction and the satisfaction of, I think, vast numbers of other people, that near-death experience is for real, that this stuff really happens. Consciousness does apparently leave the body, that what people see, hear, and use basically all their sensory organs, and actually a sixth organ, that being intuition, when they're in the out-of-body state, is for real, their life review is for real, it's realistic, uh, occasionally they see future visions of what will be expected on Earth in the future. Hey, Danyan did that too, by the way, and I'm sure he shared that in years gone by. Uh, from the, the near-death experiencers I've studied, this appears to be startlingly for real. So the bottom line is near-death experience is for real. You don't have to take my word, and you don't have to take it on faith. When the book comes out in a year, year and a half, read it, decide for yourself.
1: Okay. Well, we'll have to get back on the show when that comes out as well and, and talk some more about that. But
5: oh, I'll, couple, I'll have plenty uh, to say then. <laughs> Believe yeah. me.
1: Um, who do you know been dead the longest in all of these different studies?
5: Okay. I'm, I'm going to take a step back because as a physician I've actually had direct communications with people that have oh boy, there are some well-popularized near-death experiences where people purported that they were dead for over a day. I'm not going to name names, but I will say I'm skeptical about that. Um, you know, first and foremost, reality. I have talked directly with physicians who have, have done research articles about people that have been dead, especially children, for 30 minutes or more. Predominantly people that are dead 30 minutes or more and are successfully resuscitated at least years ago were children and very often they were drowning accidents in ice water. They'd break through ice and, and their body was cooled almost immediately from being in ice water and, and they had the ability to apparently not be able to breathe or, or to have their heart stop for half an hour or more and were successfully resuscitated with minimal or no neurologic damage. However, There's been some recent efforts at resuscitating people, and it was actually done at the University of Pittsburgh, interestingly, and and potentially some other centers, where more and more, just within the last several years, they're resuscitating people that have apparently been clinically dead for over 30 minutes, even adults, and not necessarily those that had their life-threatening event as associated with ice water drowning. Now, what's really, really interesting about this is that we're going to have more and more of these people have near-death experiences. In fact, there was a Interesting TV show, and I won't mention the channel, but they were talking with me about this near-death experiencer who, you know, went through these uh, really, really, truly cutting-edge resuscitation efforts where we're getting people uh, turned back and brought back to life, whereas even five years ago it would have been considered impossible. And of course, more and more of these people are going to have near-death experiences. And so, it, you know, as best I can tell, you're an adult. Um, your chance of being resuscitated successfully after no heartbeat and respiration for 30 minutes very very small but not zero and a lot better now than it was five years ago you get out beyond an hour almost certainly zero so Mm. but that's medical science advances on if there's one thing i respect as a physician we're getting smarter and more knowledgeable and more effective in how we administer our medical practice day after day week after week year after year we've got You've got a better chance of having a cardiac arrest and being resuscitated today than you ever had before, and in the future, an even greater chance. And a lot of these people will have near-death experiences.
1: Has anyone tried to, this is kind of an obscure question, but it's just coming to mind as you're talking, but has anyone tried to, kind of like in that you know movie Flatliners, I don't know if you ever saw it, but has <laughs> yeah, anyone tried it. to <laughs> induce the, ex- <laughs> induce oh, the experiment?
5: Oh, gosh. If I had a nickel for every time I've had to talk with them, nah, I remember. Right.
1: Uh, yeah,
5: sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, number one, uh, okay, you, you got just a couple minutes for me to respond to that because that's an important question. Gee, mm-hmm. if you, you go to a wondrous realm, you learn all these great things, you have great after effects. Shouldn't we all be inducing near-death experiences? Number one, suicides—people that try to take their own life—they try to die by their own hand. What do they learn? What wisdom can we learn from their experiences? Well, gosh, I've only studied a few hundred of those over the years gone by, you know, coupled with the research of a vast number of suicide NDEs, near-death experiences, by my research colleagues. Let me tell you and every listener, the first piece of wisdom that comes from suicides that attempt suicide and have a near-death experience is they quickly learn, as part of their experience, that they made a huge mistake, that suicide is wrong, in fact, the substantial, the overwhelming majority of people that have a near-death experience as a result of suicide do not try suicide again because they understood from their experience that's wrong, they're here on earth for purpose, their life has meaning, and under no circumstances will they try to kill themselves again. So that's really critical. But number two, I've been approached by, shall we say, too many... Uh, media moguls who say, gosh, wouldn't this be great? We can induce a near-death experience or someone nearly to die and see what happens. Me, and consistent with all other ethical near-death experience researchers, will have nothing to do with anybody that tries to induce a near-death experience and then tries to make a media topic of it. And, in fact, we will see to it that they are prosecuted legally and that they are prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law through civil action to make sure that that is discouraged. You do not try to take your own life. Yes, near-death experience is wonderful. It's glorious for the great majority of people. But it is a gift. It is not a gift that we can choose to try to achieve. It is something that happens serendipitously as a consequence of an unexpected, unplanned event. And anybody that crosses that line, me and a whole bunch of near-death experiencers, stand ready to – near-death, near-death experience researchers – We stand to come down on like a ton of bricks if anybody crosses that ethical line. I hope I'm clear on that.
1: Yes, and it's always good to mention, you know, I, years ago I was interviewing Dr. Lee Poulos and we were talking about how many people had been struck by lightning and come back with psychic abilities, uh, Daniel yeah. included. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's, we had to the do the name. same kind of disclosure, kind of, you know, disclaimer on the air, please do not go and electrocute yourself after the show, thank you very much. But, yeah, there we go. <laughs> you know, it comes to mind as you're talking, so I'm glad we got yeah, that Yeah, I, I wonder the way. if they
5: were quite as eloquent as I was
1: <laughs> or as
5: forceful. Any, anybody well, tries we, to induce this? There are legal, civil, and you know, and a variety of, shall we say, criminal and civil uh, consequences of that kind of behavior. And believe me, me and a whole bunch of NDE researchers stand ready, willing, and I dare say able to come down hard on anybody that crosses that line. Thou shalt not try to kill yourself. All and right, by the way, so that's, that's what near-death experiences understand, too. I mean, that, that's coming from on high as well. It's not just NDE researchers. More importantly... You just don't want to do that if you if you feel like killing yourself or you feel like ending your life, talk to your primary care health care team, call a suicide crisis line that is the right thing to do and you're hearing that from someone who believe me is speaking from somewhat of a position of knowledge or understanding
1: okay, so that having been said, having um, said that you know <laughs> let's pull all of this together to you have done the research you, you've you personally are coming from you know there's enough evidence
5: it's real period so um, yeah. having said that opinion, oh by the way I, let, let me tell you i'm not alone in coming to that conclusion virtually every person who has a near-death experience has the same conclusion i have they just happen to come to it a lot quicker not mm-hmm. kidding near-death experience is for real ask anybody who's had one
1: well, you know, what does this mean in the big picture of the meaning of life and all of that? Let's pull it together to that place. Okay. What, do, what is your theory on that now?
5: Oh, I don't have a theory. Can I be less than humble? Please, please. Okay. Please do. I, I, would, I would be anyway. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I, I, I've heard so many people. we studied this. we studied near-death experiencers come back and they have some insights into what we're doing here on Earth. I'll answer that. It happens to do with lessons of love. It happens to do with relationships especially loving relationships and very typically loving relationships with their family and especially children. That seems to be one of the dominant reasons that people are aware that they need to return from the heavenly realms back down to earth to continue to live their life. By the way, that's not hypothesis. I'm not guessing. That's my conclusion for some vast numbers of near-death experiencers and totally consistent with the findings of multiple other near-death experience researchers. This is factual. But above and beyond that, I mean, the, the overwhelming message is that if you want to judge yourself in some way, judge yourself as a beloved child or childess of God, because believe me, I hear that ad overwhelmingly consistently. That is what we all are. We are beloved beyond what we could possibly know, what we could possibly understand or even believe in our earthly existence. But it's true that our life is meaningful, purposeful, and has direction and and lessons for us and value for us that is vastly beyond what we could possibly know with our day-to-day normal earthly existence. I mean, this is this is the big, amazing thing. Wow, I had no idea. You know, as a doctor, you're born, live, die. Oh, whoa, boy, did I learn when I studied near-death experiences. There's a whole new universe to this. There's a whole new reality, and it's very, very positive and good. It's very, very much a part of why we're here.
1: So... You know, we're a couple of minutes to the top of the hour, and a lot of you're talking to, you know, you're preaching to the converted in some form already because at least in theory, you know, a news for the soul listener would already be aware of themselves being more than the physical and thus lay on the, you know, seeking path in life, in this life, in this place. Um, You know, trying to kind of bring that into a place where... You know, I want to know. I want to come from knowing, and they want to come okay. from knowing, you know. Good. So do I. Yeah. <laughs> now you're yeah, preaching to the they,
5: choir, that being me, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, you know, because cause when, like, News for the Soul is all about empowerment and coming from direct experience, and, you know, we've covered that we <laughs> aren't going from direct experience in that way. So how can we assimilate this information and really know?
5: Right. Oh, that's a really good question. How can you really know? How can you go beyond faith and say, I get it, I understand this? Number one, talk to as many near-death experiences as you can. Listen to this show. Every single time it's on, there's, I'm sure there's going to be near-death experiencers in the future. Are you hearing me, listeners? This show will, will bring you the original source of data that you can decide. IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Experiences, has... Uh, near-death experience groups all around the world. Look them up, iands.org. Um, go listen to these people, talk to them, ask questions, be as critical as you want. Uh, go to the website that I have developed and that uh, you know my soulmate Jody has developed, nderf.org. Read any one of the uh, thousand, over a thousand experiences posted on the website, and, and, and join the bulletin board, and, and be as critical as you want to be ask questions, be skeptical in your own way and in your own time, but believe the evidence. That's all I ask. There we go. Well, we are at the top of the
1: hour. Dr. Jeffrey Long, thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us today.
5: It has been a sincere pleasure.
1: All right. Well, I hope uh, we'll do it again soon, and keep us in the loop with your upcoming book and such. Wonderful stuff. And. Uh, I want to know. I'm going to be looking more. And, you know, who knows? Maybe we can do near-death story of the week segment on News for the Soul. (laughs) That would be lovely.
5: (laughs) The stories they have to tell.
1: Well, there we go. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in.
5: This has
3: been News for the Soul with Nicole Whitney. Visit us anytime online at www.newsforthesoul.com, where you can listen to all our previously aired shows at any time and so much more. Have a great week, and remember, what you focus on expands.
1: All of our previously aired broadcasts of News for the Soul online at newsforthesoul.com. Now let's get back to the show. And we are back. Happy Friday. I'm Nicole Marie Whitney, founder of News for the Soul, life changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained, now in its 23rd year. And boy, are we busy this year. Right now, very excited to introduce you. Well, I don't need to introduce but you will remember him, best known for his Golden Globe-nominated role in the series Happy Days, Anson Williams is also an award-winning television director, writer, producer, and entrepreneur. We're going to talk to him about how he's contributing to the front lines during this coronavirus episode on the planet. Let's welcome, you know him as Patsy from Happy Days. Can you believe that was 45 years ago? My God. (laughs) Anson Williams. Welcome to News for the Soul.
7: Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I think I think it was like 4 or 5 years ago, right?
1: <laughs>
7: right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Times 10. <laughs>
7: yeah. Quiet, crazy. quiet, please. So, where
1: um whereabouts are you You're in California? How's it how are you faring there with all that's going on?
7: Well, uh you know, pretty much like everyone else. It's a hot spot. And mm-hmm. uh you know, we're following uh the protocols, you know, social distancing and uh and the mask and, and you know and uh, wash your hands and sanitize all that yeah so it's been it's been uh, it's it's you know like everyone you get a little you get a bit of cabin fever but it's also uh, yeah it's also interesting how much you, you begin to restructure too and priorities change quite a bit
1: it is indeed yes. it's a transformative time very interesting things are in a lot of this very interesting
4: It
1: is. um so I was pleased to see how busy you've been since um, Happy Days, all the writing and directing you've been doing. But also, I want to talk to you about the product you created and how that came about.
7: What's in, um, I've always been entrepreneurial, uh, you know, finding finding voids and filling them. And, and um, my uncle, he, he actually uh, was my second cousin, but I've called him uncle ever since I was born. Was Dr. Henry Heimlich who created the Heimlich maneuver,
4: oh. and
7: uh, he had a great, great influence on me through the years. Uh, a selfless, giving man, and, uh, and just to show you, I mean, like today, I'm. Would you rather be? You know, you're, would you le- would you rather have a legacy as a movie star or a legacy as because you live lives, li- lives being saved every day?
4: Mm-hmm. And that's
7: Dr. Heimlich. He lives every day, he's saving lives, uh, but he had a great quite an influence on me and i and 20 some years ago i got into creating manufacturing uh problem solving products uh in quite a different areas of life and then um but what i'm working on now is so important for society i mean so important and it's the last project um the heimler worked on until he passed which was a few years ago and he promised me that i would get this out there because he knew how how beneficial it would be to so many mm. um well, what influenced it was years before I got into the product business, I, uh, I almost uh, killed myself by falling asleep at the wheel. Mm. Uh, and uh, Dr. Heimlich uh, informed me to uh, keep cut-up lemons with me because um, um, if you're exhausted, if you bite into a cut-up lemon, the citric acid and the sour lemon hits the lingual nerve right on top of your tongue, and the reflex reaction of the body is adrenaline. You're up, you're alert, nothing in your system, nothing to hurt you, nothing to screw up your sleep pattern, a natural way of body waking the body. And wow. uh, very old science, very old science. And I did that. I did that for years and never had the problem again. And then a few years ago when we started reading up on how um, catastrophic drugs and is in this country, I mean, it's, it's, it's right under guns. There are more deaths, more tragedies uh, than drunk and medicated combined. So uh, wow. I had an idea. And I talked to Dr. Heimlich, and I said, uh, what if we had a spray drop, citric acid, sour lemon, water, a bit of preservative for shelf life, and just spray top the top of the tongue? He got very excited. He said, let's do this. He said, this will save more lives than the Heimlich maneuver. Many more people are are drowsy driving or exhausted in their life, and and tragedies are happening, much more than choking. So we did. So we, we created literally a spray called Alert Drops which is basically uh, high-powered lemons. And, uh, and, and we've had huge results with drowsy driving to the point that U.S. Congress has honored us uh, as, 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 as an important help to society, the, the state of California, the state of L.A. But as we were going, going forward with this, we found out it helped much more than drowsy driving. Anybody that needed to be alert, which are millions of people, entertain, it's all huge in the entertainment business because of these long hours. Mm-hmm. in the medical communities, huge students um, studying all night during, uh, during, during exams. They're, they're going to the hospital because they're overdosing on caffeine and energy damage their bodies and not screw up their sleep patterns. And, um, and now um, we've just, and we've also found out in, in terms of exhaustion, it's been tremendous now um, with the coronavirus situation. We've, we've donated thousands to the frontline workers who are exhausted, absolutely exhausted. Yeah. Saving lives, and the uh, alert jobs is, is, is hugely helpful there, and also the coronavirus is causing a lot of problems in homes, where um, um, it's such a change of lifestyle for people. They're they're losing the fire, losing the adrenaline. There's, there's no contact with other people. It really and mm-hmm. people are drinking too much coffee, and they're um, they're uh, they're just doing bad things to try to get energized, and they're hurting themselves. And we're finding alert drops. Yeah, I say either alert drops or bite into lemons, one or the other, um, really really has been effective in, in helping them out of that doldrum. And uh, so I'm very – So, but I'm, I was very, very excited to be able to, to contribute to the front lines and continue to contribute to the front lines to help them stay safe and stay alert during this horrendous situation.
1: Very cool. Um, so it's primarily – so there's no chemicals
7: in it, no um, – Drown for many No, it's it's literally, literally, a hit of citric acid, natural citric acid, sour lemon water, and a bit of preservative for shelf life. That's it. That is all that's in it. And um wow. find an average of thirty minutes to an hour of like, boom, you're up, you're alert, nothing in your system. Just just like going to the doctor, and they check your reflexes. They have that little rubber uh, hammer, and they'll t- they'll check your, your knees and your arms. It's the same thing. When 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 the citric acid in the sour lemon hits the lingual nerve on top of your tongue, the reflex reaction of, of the tongue, the sensory connection of to tongue and brain, and the effect is adrenaline. Boom. You, you get an immediate, immediate jolt of adrenaline. Uh, you're up, you're alert, your body waking the body. Nothing to hurt you, nothing in your system, and we're stopping a lot of unnecessary tragedies, and we're stopping people from putting bad things in their body.
4: Mm,
1: yeah, very true. Um, you know, it's funny too. It's such an understated thing—the the driving tired. I didn't realize the stats were that high. But, you know, I I caught myself years ago once. I was so tired. I thought, God, ah, this should be illegal. Like it's worse than driving drunk, almost. You know, and nothing's sure. done about it. It's not even really well, talked that,
7: about. It. No, and, and that's what that's what gets me. They talk about drunk driving, medicated drive, drive but, driving driving's worse than all of them. All of it is two thousand twelve. They did a very detailed study, and it's more now, by the way. But back then, there were 168 million drowsy drivers a year, half the population. Mm-hmm. One out of five admitted to falling asleep at the wheel. You can imagine the tragedies. Well, today there's almost 200 million, which is over half the population. It's a big problem. It is, it, you're, you're, you're driving a firearm, and, mm-hmm. and, with, and the majority of the people killed are not the drivers. The families are destroyed. Kids are destroyed. Crazy and, and Dr. Heimlich, you know, I mean, that's why he was so passionate getting this out. Two weeks before he passed, he made me promise to get this product out because he knew the helper would get people. He knew how important it was. And so simple, like, you know, Dr. Heimlich so, his brilliance. Very simple. A natural way to help yourself. Natural. To um, alertdrops.com. Not, they can read all about it. They can, it's very, very old science. We, all we did was make a better scooter. We didn't invent it. It's a, it's a science. It's, it's been proven for years. MIT did the study 50 years ago. They can read all about that. They can read all about why it works, how it works, how safe it is, exactly what it is, um, testimonials. Um, they can buy it there. They can buy it at Amazon. And, and I tell people, if you don't want to buy it, that's fine. It just makes it a little more convenient. Have cut-up lemons. That works. So... Um, so basically it's a very, very, very simple, reasonable way for your family, your friends, your loved ones to be safe, absolutely safe. And people in the workplace, I mean, um, p- machine operators, you know, people in the medical profession, tired moms, anyone who needs to be alert to an amazing product that, that will solve that problem.
1: Love it. Well, we've got this all linked up on our website, newsforthesoul.com. Before you go, I just want to ask, you know, here we are with our little lockdown cabin time. Are you doing any new creative ventures while you're on house arrest over there? <laughs>
7: yeah, well, you know, writing, you know, a, a bit of writing that I'm trying that to do, so I'm doing that. Uh, and, then, um, you know, and then, you know, always creating new shows to get in development. I, I think it's hard, though. It's hard when you're – even if you're talking with people, to people on the phone there's some you know, I miss being in a room you yeah. know and spitting out ideas Magic happens when people are together yeah. magic happens and I miss it's that amazing.
1: yeah there, it's the energy that there's an energy factor that i'm I'm right with you it's very critical that, yeah.
7: um you yeah, have content critical and, and the magic happens that it's factor and many times yeah. well how did you how did, how did you guys come up with this you don't you don't really know it kind of just came up <laughs> yeah. And, and everyone goes, ooh, that's it, that's perfect, you know. So, um, so, I, and, and like they say too, don't try to be overproductive during these times. You know, you kind of just, 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 just calm into it, let it come naturally, calm into it. Don't, don't, don't beat yourself up to be overly productive, because um, you know that might not be the that that's not the whole purpose going through this.
1: Mm-hmm. Very true. Um. Kind of like a
4: forced
7: retreat, <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, and reprioritize too. It's it's very interesting. It, boy, Mother Nature really uh, to kind of takes you to your knees. When we can get rovers to Mars and get detailed pictures of other planets, you know, millions of miles away. We can go to the moon. We can, but yet one little virus and Mother Nature brings us to our knees, right? Absolutely. Yeah, well, so yeah. it's, I think it's I think not only not only is it a a stock market correction and all that people are talking about. I think it's I think it's humanitarian connect. I think it's reprioritizing our our, our our goals, our needs and our priorities.
1: I think you're right. I think you're right. It's gonna be interesting to see what the world looks like when the dust has settled after all this is moving.
7: Yeah, I forward. hope so. I hope so. I hope it's not you know, too many times you know people you know, you over drink and you get a hangover and people say, I'm never gonna drink again, oh my God the three weeks later, they forget about it. So I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping this isn't the same. I'm hoping this sticks. This sticks and really, it sticks. It sticks hard, and we become a, a kinder world and a less self-centered world, less self-involved world, and really look out for each other. And big business and everybody else start doing the right thing, give back.
1: Happy days. I just, I, I love the irony of speaking with you now. <laughs> in more uncertain days, but let's hope for happy days again. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Ensign.
7: Well, it's such a pleasure talking to you, too, and we'll show you do so many great things for so many. It's wonderful.
1: You be well, and keep in touch, and we will let everyone know far and wide about Alert Drops, and thank you for being here today.
7: Thank you so much. God bless. Well, stay safe. We're going to get through this.
1: Yes. Take care. Anson Williams i from Happy Days. Wow. We're going to be back with more right after this. Here are all of our previously aired broadcasts of News for the Soul online at newsforthesoul.com. Now let's get back to the
4: show.